Are you passionate about resolving conflicts and making positive impact in the world? Then USD's Conflict Management and Resolution Master's program may be for you. Learn to address conflicts at all levels, from personal disputes to global crises. Join the Croc School's dedicated community, fostering peace and understanding while you acquire practical skills to navigate diverse settings. Apply now and be the change you want to see in the world. Visit sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. That's sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. Join culture creator Ramel Wallace, museum CEO Micah Parson, philanthropist Erwin Jacobs, and urban agriculturist Diane Moss on season two of Stop and Talk, a podcast about the future of the San Diego region. How can we create a vibrant region that celebrates our cultural richness and economic strength? Find out and hear other San Diego experts on Stop and Talk. Discover seasons one and two now at stopandtalkpodcast.com. That's stopandtalkpodcast.com. This podcast is brought to you in part by the estate of Bob Nelson. Bob was a lover of all things San Diego and a longtime supporter of Voice of San Diego and its podcasts. We at Voice of San Diego are honored to have his support during his lifetime and continued support through his estate planning. Thanks for joining us on this Voice of San Diego podcast bonus episode. I am Scott Lewis, the CEO and Editor-in-Chief at Voice of San Diego. I've talked a lot on the show about the interest, maybe obsession I've taken in my daughter's active participation in youth softball. She's only 10, but in just the last few years, I've learned a lot about how competitive youth sports have become, how much money and time they require, and all the implications that has for equity and mental health. I've also seen firsthand just how different the facilities and parks are between neighborhoods just in San Diego County itself. In that world, I've gotten to know Maggie Ballant. She was a star pitcher for San Diego State University last year and led SDSU to the Women's World Series. She was the Mountain West pitcher of the year. In softball, at all levels, a dominant pitcher can lead a team quite far. All things equal, the team with a better pitcher is much more likely to win. In Maggie Ballant, SDSU found a dominant pitcher. But she transferred here from Oregon after injury, depression, and broken promises led to a rethinking of the relationship she had with the sport and with academics. College athletics are transforming right now. Players can make money on their names. They can transfer to new schools much more easily than they did before. People can gamble on their play. And the long-term consequences of all this change are unknown. We don't know what's going to happen. Balance saw all this change firsthand. She came out of a dark place and became a star in San Diego. I talked to her about all of that, the whole experience, and what it was like to be a standout youth athlete. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Let's just do a quick review. You were a star athlete and, and softball player in Pennsylvania. You got recruited to go play for Mike White at Oregon. Premier program, beautiful facilities, lots going on. It's a great experience. Uh, then things kind of start to change, and you have to enter the what's called transfer portal. Okay, so... Help me understand, because whenever somebody mentions the transfer portal, I picture this like room with this like 
you know, wavy air, you know, warp wormhole thing. And all your friends stand around and you like walk into it and then you disappear and you transfer. Obviously, it's not that, but it it did change college athletics. And you were part of the first group of people kind of using it. What is it and how does it work? Yeah, no, the portal has completely changed how college and now high schoolers get recruited. So the portal is a place that you um, sign a document from the school that you're at originally saying that you want to leave. And they give you consent pretty much. The NCAA says, all right, it's fine. Um, And then you go into the portal, which is funny. That's how you describe the portal. The way I look at the portal, thinking about my experience, is like hundreds of emails coming from every coach in the country. So when I think of the portal, I think about all the emails you're about to get. So then your name goes into the portal, which then sends out at the end of the day, they send out a mass email about everyone that added themselves onto the portal that day. So every coach in 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 the country is getting this email that you have now entered the portal. So they can reach out. There's usually a contact there. So you can pick who you want to be contacted by. Through my process, I didn't even put myself. I put my mom because I was like, I don't want to deal with it. I was still in college. I was still doing classes. I knew I wasn't going to play. I still had like six or seven months to decide where I was going to go. Somehow they just totally forgot my mom's contacts was on there and still were contacting me. (laughs) So I was like still ending up with all these emails and calls coming through. But the process of the portal is really interesting because it's giving athletes the opportunity to leave if there's a coaching change or if there's a gel with the team or academics, whatever the reason is for an athlete to leave a university, it's now giving them an escape goat. Also, when you committed to a university, there was no rule for a long time up until previously that you could commit at any age. So there were seventh and eighth graders, like think about a 14-year-old committing to a university, not going through middle school or high school yet, and then showing up eight years later after making this commitment. They're like, wait, this is not what I want. Then they have to be penalized for a year, two years, maybe depending on where they go to be to be able to play. And now that portal takes that away. Now you can have that flexibility and saying, hey, I don't like the choice that I made, so I'm leaving. And that's why I think so many athletes left, especially in that first year with us, because they were like, shoot, this is not where I want to go. So in, before you couldn't leave or it was just a lot harder? You would have to sit out a whole year and that would burn a year of eligibility. So instead of four years of playing, you'd only get three. Okay. So you would really have to leave for a severe problem or situation for you to really penalize a year of your eligibility. Fascinating. So you say hundreds of emails come in. So you're a top pitcher. You you had you did great in Pennsylvania. You did great at Oregon. Your back had some trouble, but you you end up succeeding and doing quite well. And and then all these emails come in. What is that like? Is it is it cool but also intimidating, or is it just is it overwhelming? I think it's overwhelming at first, especially leaving Oregon and being at such a great university at Power Five. I really was trying to figure out what I wanted for my next step. And choosing a school gives you different opportunities and different routes. And I think a lot of people ask me why I go from Oregon to San Diego State, because there is a very big difference in conferences and location and all that. And I really wanted to find a school that offered a program that was not on the map yet, that I wanted to help build a program. I wanted to go to a good academic school, and I wanted to be able to have a job while I worked in college as a full-time athlete and a full-time student. And a lot of schools don't let you work. 
I mean, not that they don't let you work. The flexibility is really hard to work with. But San Diego State told me the schedule beforehand, and I was like, all right, I'm bought in. I really like Stacey Newman, which is the head coach now. She was a head coach my second year here, or third year, third year, my last year here. She was my head coach. Um, So that was played a big role on why I came to San Diego State. But when you're looking at the portal – There's just tons of different avenues. Like, do I want to go closer to home, back to Pennsylvania? Do I want to stay in Oregon? Do I want to go down south? It's really cool. And I know not everyone has that opportunity to get all those emails, but it is overwhelming for anyone going through the process because you don't know where you're going. And then also the financial part comes in. Is is there scholarship money? Is there a spot on the team for you where you want to go? All those questions start lingering. So how did you go through the process of choosing? I had an idea of where I wanted to go. I was seeking those three things prior. So I was trying to find a school that would check off all those. Mm -hmm. And San Diego did. Yep. San Diego State is the only one that really nailed all three of them individually. How early did you commit as a youth athlete to Oregon? So I was a late bloomer. (laughs) I didn't get really good until high school, Mm -hmm. but I also didn't start pitching. I didn't start pitching until I was 12 or 13. People start like when they're seven or eight. Oh, yeah. So I was really late behind everybody. But I actually committed to the University of Delaware my sophomore year of high school. And that was because I was desperate for a scholarship and the pressure of there's not a position, there's no money. All these lingering thoughts were going through. So I committed. And a year later, I was like, I'm not doing this. I can't. And I was already a late bloomer for that. Now I'm like, now I'm going into junior year and everyone's about to start signing in the year. And I have no place to go and I have no money now. So what do I do? So I didn't commit to Oregon until my senior year, which is very odd for softball specific. Mm -hmm. I mean, football and other sports are more common senior year, but I didn't commit until the beginning of my senior year. You you said you were desperate for a scholarship. Is that you were desperate because of that was the only way you were going to go to college or you were desperate because you, you you had this dream to play softball in college or... Or was it something else? No, it was definitely more on the financial side. My parents put me and my three brothers into private school. So they said, we put your, we put all your money for college into private school. So you're going to have to go figure a way out to get yourself through college. So my parents said, if you want to go somewhere really far, then you better get a scholarship for that or you're going to have to take out a hefty loan. Mm-hmm. And I was not taking a loan out. Also, and then also the competitive side of me wanted to go to a big university. So when I wasn't getting those those bites my freshman and sophomore year, I was like, well, I have to settle for something smaller because I'm just not getting that. And Delaware offered me a full ride with the possibility of being a starter there. Um, So that was a big thing. Like, okay, great. I can go in, don't have to take a loan out and I get to play. So you're like 15 and 16 and thinking already. I wasn't even driving yet. (laughs) (laughs) And there's, there's schools already talking to you at that point. Yes. So at what point did you start pitching and you realize like I might be really good at this and and these calls start coming in? You 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 said you started pitching at 13? Mhm. I don't I don't think I hit this point that I was like, "Oh, I'm really good." I think maybe towards the end of my senior year as I was about to commit, I was like, "Okay, well, all these big schools are coming after me." That clearly shows I have the potential to be great. I don't think I ever looked at myself and was like, "Oh, I'm really good." But I did um hit a mile mark that I was really probably one of my most exciting things that I accomplished as a pitcher in high school. And they'll probably the only award or mark that I remember was when I hit over a thousand strikeouts within four years, which is like really rare to do. Um, And I hold the record for 43 feet 
in the state of Pennsylvania at like 1300 or something. So, I mean, that was a really cool thing. And I was like, man, that's like kind of insane that I threw 1300 strikeouts. You're talking about 43 feet. That's the distance of the mound for that age group. You had the most strikeouts and still in in Pennsylvania from that. So one of the things uh, that made me think that this would be fun to talk to you is uh, a couple months ago, a dad called me and his daughter's very involved in both high level softball and volleyball. And he was, he was, he's saying like, I really want to do a podcast. Can you teach me how? Because I feel like this whole world is kind of sick. He said like, there's just, it's so expensive. There's, it's so intense. It's very difficult for these families. It's really burdensome, sometimes almost abusive for the girls and it just, it's like, I think there's, there's somebody needs to say something about how it is. And then I followed up with him like a month later. I was like, should we do this or, or what? And he said, no, nah, I can't, I can't risk her, <laughs> her status. Right. Like he, he, and so it gave me this idea that like, maybe I, I was just, I'm just still getting into this world. And, and, you know, I don't think, I don't know, I guess what really interested me was like, I didn't know anything about it. And from this like distance and perch that I had, it seemed like there was some pretty interesting stories. So did you feel like you were part of a healthy system as a 13, 14 year old player? Or did it start to like feel like it was a little weird? I think being a full-time pitching coach now and doing clinics and working with ages from seven to 17 now and seeing how it is in California, it's very different than how it is on the East Coast. Because of the weather and that, like, we shut down for months at a time or long weekends. Here, it's every weekend. I mean, I had a kid tell me that most of my kids were playing on Thanksgiving weekend. Mm -hmm. I said, what? You guys should be shut down. It's Thanksgiving. It's just a different culture out here. But being on the East Coast, we always looked up to the girls on the West Coast because they were so stinking good. Mm. And that makes sense because they just don't stop. They're practicing every day, seven days a week for all year. Unlike us out there, we get colder months. We can't have the outside facilities, all that stuff. But I think looking at my 13-year-old self, my parents did a really good job with controlling that. They looked at me as a kid. They didn't look at me as this item that was going to get a full scholarship and go brand my family's name, which looking back at it is really refreshing because some parents don't look at it that way, that they just go, go, go. But you have to understand that they're still kids that they still could go out and play in the backyard and have friends and go to dances and have other sports. They don't have to commit to one thing only. And I think my parents, they they didn't put me in travel ball until I was entering almost high school. Mm. So I waited a really, like, this is very late blooming. I waited a very long time before we fully committed to doing anything. That doesn't mean I wasn't practicing fully committed with my parents, but when it came to the actual money expense and traveling, it didn't really start until high school. Mm. That that travel ball uh, experience was that um, was that a tough decision to make to go to that? You were, or as it was, it was at you were at the end of the rec experience at at that point anyway. I I was excited. I was ready to play yeah. better teams and travel. And travel ball is something that's really cool, mm-hmm. especially if families can afford it. It's a really cool experience, especially if you're on a really good team. And you get to go all the different places all over the country sometimes and get to compete. And I think that is a really cool experience to have. Yeah. And then you get to go see all the college coaches and 
you might not be interested in Syracuse or Long Beach, but they might be there interested in you. So at least you have that exposure that you might not get if you stay in the same area. Yeah. All right. So fast forward, you're you're at Oregon, beautiful facilities, great university, right? It's just a wonderful place. You're um you've you've hit the this is this is the gold, right? This is the gold D one, like you said, power five scholarship. And you're with a coach you love, uh, you're doing well. Is it true at that point, like you're a softball player with like school on the side, kind of? You know, it's funny because that's a touchy subject because the NCAA doesn't want to hear that. Parents don't want to hear that. But when you play for, and I'm going to be completely honest, and I hopefully this isn't hurting one's feelings, but when you play for a big school like that and you're competing for a national championship and that's all you talk about, school is not a topic in meetings. We're not talking about school unless it's below a C or you're failing severely. So I think in those big conferences, you just got to get it done in the classroom so you're eligible on the field. And a lot of those athletes, I mean, I don't know how much percentage-wise, but most of us are all trying to go pro. Mm -hmm. So our mindset is sports, sports, sports. And our whole life we've trained for this. So it's hard for us to be like, oh, well, now I'm going to have to be an All-American in the classroom and an All-American on the field. But you know where your strengths are. I think it's not a topic that's talked about because people don't want to talk about, oh, softball or whatever sport it is is the priority. But it is. It really is. There's coaches' jobs that are on on a time clock if they're not performing. There's a lot of pressure on athletic departments. There's a lot of money. I can only imagine what the football world is like. I mean, you can't sit here and say, oh, we're about the student-athlete. No, you're about the athlete. Yeah. And that and that I think looking at it as a student athlete and now not now being an alumni from a university, it's really awesome to think at that point at Oregon that I was playing at the highest level I thought I was ever gonna get to. So and in most all over the world, softball is not a professional sport like football and basketball is. You can't make that money. So we're performing at a really high level. And enjoying every minute of it. We're competing for a national championship. That's like our Super Bowl. Yeah. Ideally. So this is, if you if you start at Oregon, you're going to go and you're going to start softball right away, even if you're redshirted or something. But you're also probably going to not do like a chemical engineering degree or something like that. You're going to pick something where you don't have labs in the afternoon. It's not that you can't intellectually handle it. It's literally like you're going to have to pick between doing a lab and doing practice, right? And you can't you can't not pick practice. Totally. I mean, unless there's if you have a a student athlete that's super smart and she might and there, and this is also a different mindset that I don't think people really look at is sometimes they bring athletes on to keep the GPA above a certain level because coaches get bonuses off of student athletes doing well in school. So, they also just bring on kids that might be walk-ons and just be like, "Hey, you're here." to go to school where we'll try to give you some scholarship long-term, but you might never touch the field, but you need to be able to have A's all in your classes. There might be conversations like having, I would not be surprised if that's the case because why not? You feel like you could, you could spot those girls on the team. You, you can, you'll still never play. Yeah. You'll see their high academic kids. Um, I don't know if they're still like that now. I don't know yeah. if it's changed since the portal, but there's definitely your, like I call them the horses, like the people that are just pulling the team. And those are your star athletes. And then you have more of the student athletes that are half school, half um, athlete that are trying to do both really well. And then you have your horses that are like, I'm strictly just here for the sport. Yeah. It's a mix. 
So you are at Oregon and kind of two things happen. One, you get hurt, right? Your back hurts. And I read somewhere where you said like, I just, it was like everything. That was my whole life. And I, you start to question like, it, does it, do you start to question your identity? Like who you are and what you do as you try to, because everything hurts at that point, right? Most definitely. I think as a student athlete, even through the process of being for the six years I was in college, I think you look at it as this is who I am. This is not what I do. And I think when you look at it as, oh, this is my job instead of this is who I am, it's a very different approach to how you handle your situation. But going into that, I only knew softball. I didn't have any other jobs. I had no other work experience. I had no other hobbies. Softball was my whole entire life. And my parents have sacrificed. My brothers have sacrificed so much for me to do this. I was 3,000 miles away from home. I mean, everyone sacrificed for me to be here. So for me to now be injured and I have no control of it, was driving me crazy. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't eat. I lost a whole bunch of weight because I wasn't eating. I went into this like slippery slope that I just like cried every day because I was in so much pain. But like I couldn't do that in front of my team. I had to do that behind closed doors because that I don't want my team to know that it's that bad. You know, it's just they don't need to have that extra stress as a team. So yeah, the back injury really took a toll. And I think that's why I had such a different approach going into the portal. Because I was like, all right, my life's not softball. Because if another injury like this happens again, I don't know if I'm going to be able to perform again. You mean you start to think like, I got a plan for a different yes. future. And until then, it hadn't even occurred to you to do that? No, I was banking on making my money through softball. Uh -huh. I was banking on that I was going to get through and figure out what I want to do with my life with softball. Be a coach or be a pitching coach somewhere, take on a travel ball team and just make my income that way. And then once I got that injury and I kind of hit rough life, like I hit a low of a low, I was like, all right, well, I have to have a different approach now. And then I, when I committed to San Diego State, I was on the search. Every, every year I was at San Diego State, I got a different job, even if I liked the one that I had, because I wanted to get my feet wet in different departments and I wanted my resume to be ready. And when I graduated, my resume looked phenomenal. I had like four different jobs on it in four different areas. I had all my accolades from softball, a good academic standing. And then I was like, all right, well, it's time to apply for jobs. And then I get drafted pro. <laughs> so I was like, I just completely did a whirlwind of my decision making. But I don't regret any of that because I was ready to go into the real world just like anyone else is in college. And now I get to play professional softball. Yeah. Which was really cool. But I have all those skills that I learned in the real world. So when I'm ready to come out of softball, I still have that resume. I still have that experience to go into the real world. You, you mentioned you're, you're, you're going through this every day. You're crying. At, at some point, did it hit bottom? Was there a moment where it was like, this is unsustainable? Something needs to change? But your back started feeling better? Or how did it work out? Yeah, I. it was bad because... My parents were like on me. They're like, what's going on? Like, we got it. And my speed dropped. I was throwing 68, 69. I couldn't even throw that past 60. Like, it was something physically I could not throw. And looking back and seeing really good doctors and analytic people now is that they said that it was protecting my spine. My body was in lockdown for my spine so I wouldn't injure myself and become paralyzed. So what my body was doing, it was in lockdown mode. It did not want to work because it was protecting it from the injury. So looking back, I'm trying to force it to throw 68. My body's not at the – even though mentally I'm like, let's go, my body's like, heck no, we're not doing this today. We're not doing this for a really long time. Um, 
it was, yeah, I hit rock bottom. And it, it got to the point that my parents were calling, calling, like, what's going on? Like, part of them thought, like, I was kind of milking the injury, which I could see where they were seeing that from because I just couldn't throw hard and I was out for months. And the doctors told me, like, the only thing that can help is time. And they didn't like that answer. And it got to a point that I had to tell my parents, I'm not picking up the phone anymore. Like, it got to that bad because I couldn't handle having those conversations every day. I was already beating myself up. I didn't need questions and things being said to me to just set me off. Um, and I think when I cut my family out, it was very – it was hard because, you know, they're my backbone. But I needed to do that for my own self. And I, I didn't talk to anybody for a good couple weeks. I mean, it was probably like two months, honestly. It was way longer than a couple weeks. But I know my parents were really, like, concerned. Like, my mom was about to fly out and live with me for a couple months to make sure that I was going to be okay. And I was like, listen, everything's going to be fine. And then she saw how much weight I lost, and she even got more concerned. She's like, what is going on? And it, it was just the most bizarre situation, and nobody had answers for me. It's just like one of those things that I was like, all right, well, we just got to figure this out. And it was a lot of self-reflecting and reading and spending a lot of time by myself and letting myself feel the way I wanted to feel. I remember I, I told one of my athletes this. This was like super personal that I exposed to my, about myself was there would be these days that I would lay on the floor completely on my back and my phone would be off and I would look at the ceiling and I would already start crying because I'm in so much pain because my back and all the stress and anxiety and then all the what ifs if I, if I was ever going to get back to the point I was. And I remember I just kept on telling myself, feel the way you want to feel. If you want to feel sad today, feel it. If you want to be mad, be mad. And it went on like that for about three months. Um, and it got to the point that someone actually walked in on me doing it. And I'm hysterically crying for about three months like doing this. And he said to me, he says, you have to make the decision when you're going to get over it. You can sit here and be like this for the next 12 months, or you can decide whenever it's time right to get off the floor and start acting right. And then I was like, you know what? I've had three months. And I'm like, you're right. I got to turn the switch off. I got to go back to the competitive, confident, let's freaking go person that I was and not that I feel sorry for myself. I'm going to let this injury completely destroy me. And honestly, after that day, I got off the floor. I never did it again. And that was my turning point. And that is when I took things way more seriously. And I went home for three months and I did PT three times a week. It was super intense. And I never had another injury since then with my back. So one of the things that college athletics has been dealing with over the last, you know, two years, well, forever, but over the last two years, especially, there's been a series of athletes who have died by suicide. There's been a lot of discussion about whether the the whole uh, situation is too intense. If if those moments are unbearable for for various reasons, do you feel like there's something systemically wrong um, to support athletes in that moment, or is it is it just something that that can be managed and improved and will evolve? It's a hard topic because it's a topic that's becoming more on surface level right now, it's hard because all these athletes that have committed suicide, I mean, not all of them, but most of them had resources. They had places to go. If that was on campus, if that was a coach, if that was a teammate, a roommate, a parent, they had somebody. And from my understanding and from my work of understanding mental health is that 
sometimes they don't want to express that and they don't want to put on their own issues on somebody else. So they internally try to deal with it. And it takes them down that route, even though they have all this support system and they have a loving family or they have a coach that cares about them. It's just something that they're in their head about. And it's it's really sad and it's a hard topic to talk about, especially with athletes or even any student. But there there is resources. And it's I think having conversations like this and in the classroom and making mental health more of a topic to talk about is going to help that student that might internally want to keep it to themselves go to their friend and say, I'm having these thoughts. Mm-hmm. Right now, it's kind of sh- society hasn't accepted the mental health as much as they should be. Um, but it's also one of those things, if you can't see it, then what's a problem, right? Yeah. If you say, oh, my arm hurts and you get an x-ray, it's broken. But if you're saying, hey, I'm having anxiety and depression, it's hard for someone to not phys- physically see it. It, it. It's just how humans work. But it's it's a hard topic. I think universities are still struggling to provide the the needs they need for those hard conversations. I know San Diego State doesn't have anybody. Um, Oregon did. San Diego State has a like all the whole student community can go to it, but they don't have anything specific for athletes. I know they're working on that right now, but it's kind of like one of those things that something serious is going to have to happen for it to be pushed. And it's really sad to say that, and it hurts to say that, but taking it to that next level, they're it's just how it is. Being in the counseling world right now and looking at different licensing that I want to get to become a therapist, I looked the other day, mental health is like on a 10% increase because now – companies are hiring mental health people to come in to protect them, one, because of lawsuits, and they also want to make sure that their workers are taken care of. It's a stressful situation that students and student-athletes are dealing with along in the workplace, not just not just kids in their 20s. Even people in their 30s and 40s and 50s are still dealing with things. It's just not a young thing, you know? Yeah. It's just, I think, generational in the 40 and 50 range – um, age group. It's like more of like you had to push through all that kind of stuff. And now it's like, well, now we can talk about it. And it's like, okay, now there's a divide because in the 40s and 50 age group, it's like, well, I got through it. So should you. But generational things have changed. Technology is one of the biggest things that has changed from a 40 year old to a 20 year old. It's just rapidly changed. And there's different things that happen now. Yeah. You had an experience then at Oregon, new coach takes over and half the or a lot of the the players end up going with the old coach to um texas i guess uh and then there was a lot of turmoil you decide to stick around it doesn't work out you don't have a good experience what have you learned from travel ball and high school to college about what makes a good leader and coach what is it that really makes something someone both motivational and and supportive, but also, you know, not, you know, too lenient or how does it, how does it, what's the best recipe for, for a leader that you've learned? Comparing my experiences when I joined Oregon, when I joined San Diego State, I think when there is a coach that flat out says, these are the rules and guidelines, these are the standards, this is the face of our program, these are our morals, and this is what we're going to go by. If they give you a guide of what this program is like and what we expect you to act like, that to me shows me what your characters are as a coach, what you expect me to do, and what I expect you to do. So we're all on the same all on the same playing field right now. 
I think when there's times that there's that gray area, like, oh, well, player did this, but she didn't have to pay the punishment. Gray area like that is not going to fly. There's going to be no respect given in those situations. And that creates drama. I think if a coach comes out and says, these are the rules, I don't care who you are, what you did, if you break one of them, this is the consequence. And that's how it's going to be. And I think a lot of people respected Mike White when we were there because he was a black and white kind of guy. This is how it's going to be run. It's my way or the highway. This is how my program is going to be run. And I think having that system is really beneficial because as an athlete, especially jumping into a new chapter and a new environment and a new schedule, having someone tell you this is how it's going to be done. If you don't do it, here's your punishment. So you get to decide what you want to do. Um, so it kind of leaves the door open of what path you want to take. Do you want to buy into the program and follow the rules and commit and 100% fall f- flat on your face if your coach says so? Or do you want to kind of wander and make your own decisions and get yourself into some trouble? I also think recruiting good people, good kids. Not only are they athletically talented, but are they a good person? Or Do they have morals? Do they have values that are similar to everyone else's? Or are they just this wild child that believes in this other theory of other, you know, it's just, if you have someone that's fully bought in and you have similar people, it's going to be very easy if you have similar people going towards the same goal. If you have people that, oh, I might be here for this reason, I might be here because my parents wanted me to, it's not going to buy into when everyone else is committing. Everyone's here to win a national championship, so everyone's going to act like that. Everyone's going to follow that guideline. Um, So I think that is what takes a really good leader is point blank saying, this is my expectation of you. This is our value as a team. This is a value as a person. Let's go for it. What does it look like when a team goes bad? I think when the coaches and players are not on the same page, when there's a divide, when it's coaches on one side and players on the other side, and the players are all in their feelings and then the coaches are all kind of doing their own thing, um, it, it really makes a divide. And it's really hard to get out of that because you have to get 20 athletes out of their head to let something go. And then you got to get four coaches to meet in the middle. So when, when you say they're, they're separate, does that mean that the players are talking amongst themselves about how they don't trust, don't appreciate, don't think that the leadership is going in the right direction. Yes. And then, and then there's like an awkward, you know, sort of cold war between them and the, the manager. Yes, totally. I mean, and this is the funny thing is I hate saying this, but this is women's sports. Men's sports are run very differently. Women, and I say this totally respectfully, is that women need that connection. They need that caring, loving connection. Men don't need that. Men need you yelling at them. They they already have that passion and fire. You just got to control them. Women, you have to build that connection and trust and love between them so there is more of a respect. So it's a very different approach when you have a male coach or a female coach that might or might not know how to handle female athletes. It's very different. That's fascinating. You're saying there there needs to be a purpose and, and the women need to understand the purpose and be bought in on that. Is that what you're saying? Yes. The men, not so much. And it's just a different mindset. Also, their careers, when I say they, I mean the men's careers can go way farther than ours for a way amount sure. of more money. For us, this is it. So this is way more emotional for us. We're very women are very emotional when it comes to having that connection. So if there's no if there's no pot of gold at the end of the line, the only reason to do it is is to is to do it for emotional or or self motivation. Yes, totally for a yes. team. Fascinating. So now though, 
there is some different motivations on college campuses. You were at the peak of your career in college when the names, image, and licensing system starts to open up where for a long time, uh, the NCAA did not allow athletes to benefit. They couldn't sign autographs for money. They couldn't sell branding. They couldn't do, now they can do basically everything. They can't be promised a, a deal in exchange for going to a school or something like that. But you can sell merchandise, you can uh, do camps, you can sign autographs uh, and, and make some money on the side. Has that changed college athletics for the better or is it is it also kind of creepy? I think it's very beneficial because look, for example, if you go to postseason and you're competing for a national championship, this is any sport, that coach gets a bonus off of their athletes, which rightfully show they put the work in absolutely. But that athlete doesn't get a bonus. We don't get a $10,000 check. We don't get a $5,000 check. We don't get anything. We get maybe a gift from the NCAA. That's what we, we get a free 30-inch TV. Is that That's what we get. I, I'm sorry. I don't want a TV. I want $10,000. Thank you. I'm sorry. You. you got a TV for going to the college world? Series? You get a, they give you like a catalog and you, and you have certain points of how really? far you, yeah, it's, it's a different situation. So you don't get, I want to, I want a check. Yeah. Cut me a check, please. Um, so, and I think a lot of athletes feel the same way is we don't want beat headphones or a new sofa or a blender. We want, we want a check. And they did that because they were still trying to like give us something without really fully giving us what we wanted. Yeah. And they probably felt a little guilty because they're making all this money. Like think about the final four and how that goes. They make so much money off these athletes and those athletes get a scholarship. They're living off of maybe $2,000 a month, depending on the city you live on. So there's a lot of people that say like, well, that scholarship's worth worth a lot, Oregon or whatever. No, it's not. It's not. It really isn't. Okay, you're going to give me a $2,000 check. I'm going to make how much money a month or a year? Mm Mm-hmm. And yes, it's not tax, but you make, let's just say you make $30,000, $40,000 and you get a free degree. Well, then people are like, well, the degree is worth $250,000. So you're really making, let's just say $600,000 in four years. But that's not, you, that's not logical. Well, then why isn't it like that for the coaches? Yeah. Right? It's, it's not. They get this big paycheck off these athletes and these athletes get nothing. Does that change the motivation though? Like you said, like women are in there working. This is the top of their careers they're pushing for teams and friendships and for the coherence of the, of the, of the squad. Does this change that? Does this add a, a different motivation that, that it may be better for the dynamics? I think a lot of us had questions when it first came out because it's like, well, now your full athlete scholarships are going to get these big deals. Yeah. And the ones that maybe are impartial or walk-ons might not get these deals. That's not the case. Actually the walk-ons and the people that are impartial scholarships are really working the deals because they want the money. So, I mean, it's it's a pretty evenly split situation. I mean, I think the NIL deals are awesome. I wish there was more. There's not as many as there should be. And it gives a different opportunity because now you're giving kids, um, not kids, students, a um, opportunity to make money off of themselves, which they rightfully should. I mean, a couple of years ago when I was at Oregon, I couldn't even have an Oregon t-shirt on on the flyer. I couldn't even say I was from the University of Oregon. I just had to have my name and my picture of a genetic T-shirt on. I couldn't even advertise, oh, the picture from Oregon's coming to town. No, that was not allowed. Really? Yeah. I could not use Oregon's logo or any logo to promote myself because Oregon wasn't making a benefit out of it. Hmm. 
could you could you get any money at all for for who you are? Like if you went back to Pennsylvania for a winter, only solely on my name alone, I could not use Oregon as a stepping stone to get more money. Mm. But now you can put it on everything. Oh, I'm so and so. I played here, and these are my accolades. You have a situation also now. This is why I was so excited to have you on because I feel like there's so much happening to college athletics right now. So. The other big thing, it's not necessarily uh, as big in California yet, which is this gambling. Like you, there's going to be a lot more gambling on college sports, and I and you, you're you, you know, guys on the football team, you know, guys on the so- on soccer and on baseball, you know, these athletes too. I'm worried about the day an athlete goes to class after losing a big game on on Saturday. And a guy losing five thousand dollars on the game, and then seeing him at class on Monday, feels like there could be some really awkward experiences, if not violent experiences, with that situation. Are are athletes talking about gambling and and the betting on sports, or is that still kind of uh, uh, new around here? Yeah, we don't. We haven't really had that conversation. I mean, we could never as an NCAA. Sp- athlete you could never bet on an athletic college team i think it's more of i mean anyone could go bet five thousand dollars on a soccer play and be upset they lost it doesn't have to be a student athlete it could be a regular athlete in the same class they can do that but i think it's more of the respect from athlete to athlete if you're in the training room and you see the quarterback in a sling you can easily go call whoever's in Vegas or whoever's going to bet on that game saying, oh, so-and-so's. But it's like, would you want that being done? You don't want your information and your health information being sent out mm-hmm. for purpose of someone else making money off you. It's more of a respect thing to kind of keep it in-house. Um, I have not experienced any of that, so it's hard for me to talk on, but I think it's more of a respect thing. I mean, even about our own injury, we're not even supposed to talk to our own injury about other to other Sports teams, if we see someone in the in the training room, even my own teammate, and I'm like asking her what's wrong or are the trainers there, the trainer can't tell me anything. Like she has to be completely mute and say technically she's not obligated to tell you anything. Mm. So it can be private even on your own team. So the on SDSU campus, there's a new or right nearby, there's a new stadium for the football team. It's beautiful. There's um obviously a determination to make it uh, a, a very high level program. And we, we've seen a lot of advancements with women's athletics over the last 20 years, 30 years. There's um, a lot more resources like, like you saw at Oregon. And even here, there's a lot of things at San Diego State for women's athletes. Do you feel as though women's athletics is where it needs to be though? Or is it still... Uh, a lopsided experience and or is it lopsided and it all makes sense that it is lopsided it's lopsided but it makes sense to a point i mean women's athletics did not start when men's athletics started i think that's what some people forget i'm all about women being equal with men and i think women are like well they get paid x amount of money in the mlb or the nfl and it's like but they've been around for 100 plus years than we have like we're making great progress, but we've only been around for so many years. I mean, we're not even halfway to what they are. So it's hard to make that comparison, even though we want to have it now and we want our right to be, yes, we get paid the same amount as them. It's just not possible. Also, we don't have the viewers that men have. For whatever reason that is, 
we just don't have the viewing and we don't have the funding that comes in. So it's a really interesting situation that women's athletics is put into. I mean, it's quite ironic that the men got this beautiful stadium, Snapdragon, millions of dollars, but the softball field has not been touched, has not been touched at all. We have metal fencing, like metal, like I don't even know how to explain it. It's not it's not a fence. It's just straight metal sheets mm-hmm. painted in green. It's the San Diego State on it. And when AUX came out here for the Pro League, the, there was a banner all over it. So you couldn't see what was, they thought it was padding. It was full on. I mean, girls are getting bruises on their shoulder. It's going to take one incident and a girl run into that and she's going to break her neck. Mm-hmm. But they will not change it. It's cost too much money for padding. They said until, there's no, until an incident happens that someone's going to sue for it, nothing's going to happen. This keeps coming up, uh, incident of mental health, that, that something like that happens, then they'll finally get the resources or an injury. Is that the way it feels right now, that something needs to go wrong in, in a lot of different areas for things to be improved? Yes, they say we don't have the funding. Okay, great, we don't have the funding. but we have. And then they're saying, well, we're building this million-dollar stadium so we can have the funding. It's like, well, why can't we start putting money towards our pot mm-hmm. and making this stadium better, you know? There was uh, um, an incident... Um, off campus where some football players were accused of, of assaulting uh, a woman. Um, there have been no charges so far. Uh, do you feel like that environment has been addressed enough? The, the, the way accusations are dealt with, the way certain environments are um, set up, and the training and sort of pre-prevention efforts are done, is that adequate right now to both avoid assaults and respond to them when something happens? I really don't know how to answer that, to be honest. Um, That's a a touchy subject right now. Um, So I'd rather not talk about that. Okay, that's fair. Um, Can we talk about softball? Yes, please go ahead. Ask all the questions you want for softball. All right. (laughs) So I think what's really interesting, and this is the case in baseball as well, but it feels like more in softball. Maybe you can correct me. Is it true, like pitching is just 80% of the experience? If you have a dominant pitcher, which you were, you came in, you you, you had a no, how many no hitters? You had a no hitter this this spring. I think that was my first one. Yeah, that was, uh, I, that was I followed that game. It was a great game. Um, but you have somebody like you who can come in and throw high 60s and place it where you need to. It's very hard to compete against that. And it it feels like pitching is is a whole different level than the rest of the sport. Is that true? I think when you have a dominant pitcher, it definitely makes the environment a little bit less stressful, mm-hmm. especially if you have a dominant strikeout pitcher because she's taking most of the outs away. So that means the ball's not in play. Yeah. So it takes stress off everyone else. So I think in some parts of it, yes. Um, but sometimes you have a dominant pitcher, but it doesn't go as planned. So right. I think it, it all depends off, I think, off the person and the personality that's gelling with the team. But, I mean, pitching is very crucial to the game. Yeah. It's very. I mean, you can have one good pitcher and you can go far. You can have a staff. And that's kind of where the softball is going right now. I know baseball is a little bit on that way right now, too, is that there is no one pitching seven innings these days. They're pitching two innings here, three innings here, one inning there. And it's becoming more of that baseball mindset is we don't need a kid to come in here and do seven innings. I was grateful enough that I was probably one of the last people to do the seven inning kind of thing. But that was because 
I like to work. I like to pitch a lot. I like to go deep in counts. I, I enjoy, I thrive in that environment. And I think that's why I was successful is because I enjoyed it so much. And I, and I performed very well. You must have had several moments in travel ball in high school and such where you're, you're in a tournament and you're pitching like four or five games, 300 pitches or something, right? Did you ever feel like, what am I doing here? Like, this is too much for me at this age to deal with? Or was it just like, give me the ball, give me the ball, give me the ball? Yeah, I think it's that mindset that you're just so competitive that you want the ball. And then looking back on it, you're like, holy smokes, <laughs> I pitched five games on a Sunday and now I pitch one and I'm exhausted. Yeah. But it's more mental now. It's not there. When you're in travel ball, you're grinding. You're going through a lot. You're working through injuries or anything for that scholarship is what you're trying to go for. So I think at that point, you're not thinking about that because you're like have this c- common goal with your family, with your travel ball team, whatever it is, you're having this goal. And then when you get to college, it's like, I just got to win. Like I'm already recruited. I'm here. I just got to win and compete. If I can do that, then we're going to be okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned the staffs, um, you know, combining. You made it to the Pro League, Athletes Unlimited. So this was a, um, a really interesting setup where there were there were no coaches, right? So the, the team's would form around a captain and then they'd reform depending on performance and the captain, like a committee would decide how to run a pitching uh, lineup for the day or something like that. You had a, a great performance where you combine with two other pitchers and and you end up winning this game. And, and I remember an interview where you did after that where you're like, well, uh, we decided as a committee that this was the best way to roll that out. I think that's fascinating. So did you guys have any trouble working together as players to decide the lineup and who pitches or was it just was it a really uh, it made sense everybody knows who should go where athletes unlimited is a very interesting concept because it's something that you will never really go through in any other form so our captain changed every week so every week you got onto a brand new team so every five days you got reselected and they did this live draft and you would watch the draft and you go into a Zoom room and you would talk about when practice was, what's our mindset for this week. And then the captain would schedule – the captain was the coach that week and would schedule how the practice would run, make the lineup however she would like, and then tell the pitchers where they were going to be fitted. Now, there was a lot of – there was a good amount of veterans that were in the pros for about three to five years. So they had the concept. They also know the hitters really well. So fortunate, I, I was lucky that I was with – girls that were experienced in the pros being a rookie I'm like oh great this is gonna be fun I don't know anything about anything and the veteran pitchers actually did a really good job helping the captain if they weren't the captain saying where each pitcher would fit the best where her six like they'd be like all right well you have so-and-so from nine to ten or nine nine to the two spot I think Maggie would be a good set for those people. Then once she gets to five, six, seven, I think so-and-so should be good for those people. Just off of spin and rotation stuff, just knowing pitching. Mm. So it was – and the thing is, I think in Athletes Unlimited, you're like, well, aren't you so competitive? Because you're you're competing for money. Mm -hmm. You're also competing to be on the leaderboard and be a captain. But it is the coolest experience because everyone around you is so great at what they do everyone's gifted. I mean, there's no one that's probably way better than anyone else. Like everyone is in a very similar pool. They're all on national teams, Olympians. They're the best from their university, all Americans, you name it, they are. So when you go in there, there's no one that has a big head. Everyone's really there because they truly love softball and they want to grow the sport. And I think 
going in there not knowing that's how the mindset was, it was a little intimidating because I'm like, man, these players are so good. Like watching some of them when I was in high school on TV, I was like, oh my God, they're so good. And now I'm competing against them, all Americans and people that won the gold. And it was just, it was just a really cool opportunity. But the competitiveness is awesome because everyone is out there to win. Yes, they like you. Yes, they're going to respect you. Yes, they're going to have fun. But they're out there to win. And that is like really cool that you get to play in your 20s just as competitive as you were maybe when you were 10. But now it's a whole different concept because you know so much more information. So there's been stabs at professional softball before. There was a, a National Women's League uh, then COVID hit and now they're reforming that. But there was a, there was kind of an idea that, yeah, you, you could play and make a little bit of money during this period, but you had to put your whole life on hold. You couldn't have a career and such. Did athletes unlimited pay? You said they paid uh, on performance or it was, so you got, if you won an inning, so winning the inning, like if you scored yeah. and they didn't, if you won the inning, you got paid out from that. If you won the game, you got paid out. Everyone got paid out on the team, not just because if you played or not. Right. And then depending on how your performance was, like so if you got a home run, you got 40 points. Not only did you get paid out from inning to inning and, game, and winning games, you also got points when you won. So anytime you won something, you got points. So all those points would add up and you'd be put on the leaderboard. So then the leaderboard was where you were going to end with your bonus for the year. Mm. So every number is one through 60. If you were number one, you got a $30,000 bonus. If you were number 60, you got a $1,000 bonus. So you could figure out how, where you were. That's fascinating. So you, you, you have a team, but the team switched. You're really on your own, but it's like everybody's with you too. Yes, you have to be. And the funny thing is the concept of the game and how they made it for AU, you're like, well, if I just go in there and do really well, I don't really care if the, you win the game, Right. But the points are more heavily on your team wins and any wins than they are for your individual points. So it makes you still become a team player. You can't be selfish, which I really like because at first you're like, well, I'm the pro. You know, it's just a different mindset. Like you're just trying to do what you need to do for yourself. But if you start to drift away from being that team, that team's not going to be good that week. Mm -hmm. And there's been, te there's been games that some teams win maybe two innings out of three games. That's nothing. They get completely pushed down to the bottom of the leaderboard. And the leaderboard is constantly moving up and down. Every every play, a leaderboard's shifting because all the points are coming into play. So it's, it's it's like you're at a casino when you're sitting there. You're like watching the board go up and down with your name on it. That's fascinating. So will you continue with that? If I get recontracted out, yes. Yeah. Yeah, the contracts um, are sent out soon. So there's some people that are already contracted out because they give them out early. But if I do get a contract, I will sign it. You were mentioning there's also opportunities overseas too, like Japan, other places. Are there leagues and professional opportunities a lot more developed than here? In Japan, that's where you go to make your money. Mm. I mean, as a pitcher, you can go over and play for six figures. It's, I mean, that's the most amount of your money you're going to get. Mm -hmm. But you have to be in Japan for like eight months. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, and you play softball every day, but one, you, I think you get one day off a week. So you're playing six days a week. Mm -hmm. If that's not a game, if that's not practice. So it's it's definitely a different lifestyle over there. I know some girls in AU actually flew in for AU. We're at AU in Chicago for a couple of weeks. They flew out the next day after AU ended and was in Japan again for the half of their season. So they played nonstop all year. Mm. So I got to know you, uh, full disclosure, because you helped with a clinic we were putting on uh, for pitchers and catchers at the league that I helped run. Um, 
you've been involved with teaching some youth uh, now. How's that going? And what are you seeing out there as far as what girls are dealing with and, and how they're learning the game and, and whether they're getting the support they need? You know, that's an interesting question because from having a drastic ages, you know, you, seven-year-old's very different than a 17-year-old. Teaching pitching and the development, I not only teach the, like the fundamentals of pitching, but I also talk about the mental side of our performance and how we react and what what's our mindset going in there, being bodied aware, which a lot of pitching instructors don't do. They just do the simple, this is how you do it. But I always, I teach a mental training course that we talk about the mental side of games and I make them fill out. I have this quiz that I give them. And you know what's crazy? From every age group that I've worked with, confidence is the lowest seeking out of all of them, which is really interesting. Because as a pitcher, you have to be confident. Regardless if you're right or wrong, That or in any sport, you have to be confident. And I think teaching, knowing that now, that from no matter what age group you are, confidence can be always something that you talk about. But you can't tell somebody to be confident. I mean, the reason I wanted to have you here too is I feel like there's so many lessons for leadership. You talked about the coaches versus the players. Like that that applies to every workplace. And I feel like if you're going to be a, a great speaker or if you're going to be a great leader in any situation, you have to have the confidence. But you can't tell somebody be confident. They're, they're no. just going to sit there and be like, okay, I'll try it. You know, it's like... No, so you how, don't ever say that. So how did you me. summon it when you were out there and you knew that you were like struggling or something, but you you pull it together? Where does that come from? And that, and, and instead of having... And my lessons don't even know that I do this with them, but it's becoming, finding out who you are. It's what your strengths are, what your weaknesses are. What do you bring to the table? And I give them homework once a week other than just pitching. I said, I want you to tell me five things you're really good at, regardless if it's pitching or if it's hitting, whatever it is, and or goals. Let's talk about off-season goals. And I always throw in there, how about be a really good teammate? How about be a really good helper or hustle off and on? Things that they can control that brings them value. Oh, well, I'm really good at this. And if I know I'm really good at this, I'm going to dive deep into this. Mm-hmm. Okay, maybe my weakness is this, but so-and-so is really good at that. And understanding what you bring to the table. I think if you have confidence in who you are and what you do and how you do it and you know you're right, then you will be okay out there. And that is my job to teach an eight-year-old is what you're good at. What can we do in this lesson that's going to make us better today? What can we carry on here that we can carry on to the field? And also there's a lot of conversations about school because I know some parents just drop their kid off and they go run errands or whatever the case is. And I feel as a, as a coach – and as a mental coach, I feel that I am responsible to have conversations to make sure bullying's not happening or the kid feels safe and there's no situations. I truly do feel that way. Not that I'm seeking to find the bad, but like asking, oh, how was school today? What did you learn? Having those open conversations because I want them to look at me and just be like, oh, she's just my pitching coach. I want them to be like, well, that's someone I can go to. Because if there is any situation, I hope I've created the safe space for all my kids that I see that they can come to me about any situation. Because right now being a kid's hard. It's it's hard with technology, it's hard with social media. It's it, it's just hard. I mean, people are mean, you know, it just and I was picked on and bullied as a kid and see and I and that was just for different reasons, but I'm like I can only imagine how it is now with social media and texting and the gossip that can go behind and being passive aggressive, you know, I just can't 
I can't imagine being a kid right now. It's a hard time for them. All right. I'll leave with this one. So I think one of the coolest things about softball and sports in general is that it, it teaches you how to fail. You have to deal with failure. You're going you're gonna to strike out. You're going to um, give up a big home run or a walk that ends the game. You're going to have these moments that you fail and you've got to like brush it off. But again, you can't just tell somebody to brush it off. What have you learned about how to fail and how to fail well? Because uh, you've, you've proven that you can bounce back so many different times over this career. What have you learned? I think goal setting has been a big part of my journey and performing because me going up there and say, I'm not going to give a home run up today. I'm already putting a negative in me. I'm telling myself I can't do something, which I don't, regardless if that is like, oh, I can't, I, I don't want to put the word can't into my vocabulary. So going in there and be like, my goal is what can I control? Because home runs are going to happen. You're going to lose the game for the team. You're going to make an error. I mean, it's going to happen. You can't expect to go out there and expect a perfect performance. So why even have that mindset when you're practicing? Errors are going to happen. Things are going to happen on the field that you can't control. But going in there and saying, what can I control and how can I respond to it? So when a kid makes an error or one of my teammates does something or says something, how am I going to react? Am I going to make it worse? Am I going to make it better? Am I going to try to control it so then it doesn't catch fire onto the rest of the team and take us down a loophole? So I think understanding how you respond and how you talk when failure is about to come or you're preparing for it is that it happens. It truly happens. And I have a thing that I like to go into my, my preparation is I like to set goals every game. Goals as I'm going to work ahead or things that – have room for error, but aren't going to destroy me. That if I go home and I lose the game and I look at my goals and say, all right, did I do my goals today? Do I have my three things? And I can say yes. Then I said, well, then I did the best that I could do today. Mm -hmm. I'm not asking myself to throw 15 strikeouts. I'm not. When you get into that number game and you become obsessed with it, you lose the passion and the drive and you lose a disconnecting piece to the team because you're just worried about yourself and your own stats. If you're worried about the team and the people around you, then you forget about yourself, which is what's that's why you're in a team sport. If you want to be an individual sport, go golf or go be a sprinter somewhere. Don't don't play a team sport if you can't care and take care of the people around you. Maggie Bell, thanks for coming in. Thank you so much, guys. Thanks for listening to the Voice of San Diego podcast, the most popular public affairs podcast recorded in San Diego that interviewed Maggie Ballant, star pitcher for SDSU's softball program. It's the most popular program that does that. Keep up with everything we're doing with the Morning Report. Check it out at vosd.org slash morning, vosd.org slash morning. I'm Scott Lewis, CEO and Editor-in-Chief at Voice of San Diego. Nate Johns, our producer. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you soon.